As a mother, wife, and divorce attorney for over 15 years, experience has taught me a lot about how to deal with times of uncertainty, transition, and facing opportunities for growth. I'm happy you're joining me for this part of the journey. If you or someone you know is facing divorce, you know that this can be a time of incredible fear as everything that seems certain is now uncertain. Today, we're gonna to talk about the positive aspects of divorce. As a divorce professional, I know that this period of transition can also be an opportunity for incredible life transformation. And my first guest today is Elise Bowie. Elise is the founder and owner of Elise Bowie Family Law in Seattle, Washington. She is an amazing lawyer who has a heart for helping families through the divorce process. And she herself knows personally what divorce can mean as her life now thrives after divorce. She's also the host of the Maximum Mom podcast, where she provides hope and encouragement to moms who are juggling it all from motherhood to being a life partner to crazy, chaotic careers. So Elise, I'm so happy to have you here today. Oh, thanks, Jennifer. I just cannot wait to have this conversation with you. <laughs> Excellent. Well, as we get started, I just wanted uh, you to introduce yourself to us and tell us who are the people in your life who bring you joy? Oh, thanks. Well, um, I'm Elise Bowie, and like you said, I'm a family law attorney in Seattle, and I am married to the most amazing human on the planet. I just have to say that, though I'm sure everybody else's <laughs> spouse is amazing as well. But I'm married to Doug Russell, who is just the most supportive, wonderful human. And together, we have a blended family with six young adults now. So um, they go from Caitlin Shannon, Katie, Ian, Eric, and Ethan, and they're about 10 years um, spanning those six young adults. <laughs> so it's a ton of fun. And now we even have grand puppies, and Doug and I have two of our own puppies because we were a failed empty nest when we brought Ethan to college. We ended up getting two puppies. <laughs> I love that. Um, of course, you know, being a parent to puppies is um, has its own challenges and joys and privileges. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, you're not a native to Seattle, so you actually came, you uh, are from New Orleans and survived the Katrina hurricane. And so I kind of want to go back and talk a little bit about that period of time in your life and what things were like then and and how you you know how you got through that wow girl we're gonna have to have a longer time period <laughs> like um hurricane katrina was a wild adventure to say the very least actually it began a few weeks before the hurricane struck for me my um best friend in new orleans who was also a mother of six. She had, was divorced at the time. She was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer in a shock of all shock, shocking diagnoses. So I was super involved. I mean, like, you know, day to day, 24 hour a day kind of involvement with her family, her kids, medical care, getting her set up with chemo. I mean, the whole bit. So all that, you have to put all that into my Hurricane Katrina mix. So when the hurricane actually came to New Orleans, I was in the hospital with my friend Lisa at the time, who was in the ICU. Long story, won't go there. But um, and so was shocked when my ex-husband at the time, he was my husband, he called me at the ICU and was like, Elise, we need to evacuate. I'm like, 
what are you talking about? I was like, we don't evacuate. <laughs> I never evacuated from a hurricane in my life. Like, I do not know what you're talking about. He was like, oh no, this is for real. We need to evacuate. Like I'm going to pack for the kids. I really thought something had gone crazy with him. I was just like, that's not a real thing, but it turned out it was a real thing and we did need to evacuate. So we evacuated to his parents' house in rural Georgia, actually lived there for a year, then moved to Minnesota for five years. And then um, I got remarried and moved out to Seattle. But I mean, the Hurricane Katrina story is not um, complete without the reality that my ex and I were preparing to, to divorce at the time the hurricane hit. So, so we then obviously had to rethink the timing of that divorce as we're evacuating. And Lisa is, you know, in a coma in ICU and I've got her kids to deal with. So, I mean, it was a lot going on to say the least. And so we, David and I, my ex-husband, we stayed together for five years until we kind of could stabilize and make both those moves to Georgia, then to Minnesota. And then we divorced five years after Hurricane Katrina hit. Oh my gosh. So at the time, not only was it, did the hurricane cause upheaval, but you were also losing a best friend. And um, and you knew at that time that, that you were going to be getting a divorce. Yep. That yeah, is, it was pretty wild. That's a lot. So, you know, like our families today, we are dealing with a lot, of course, coming, you know, in the midst of the pandemic, I'd like to say coming out, but it looks like that that's not the case. Um, you know, what, what was it during that time that really got you through it? I mean, the day-to-day -day with just the chaos and everything, and you've got young children at the time. How did, did. how did you manage all that? Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, at the time, you know, I had four young children, 11 and under, and they, they're about a six-year span. So um, it focused on them was a huge part of it, you know, really being focused on um, what what was this experience going to look like for them? And so, I mean, the hurricane alone obviously traumatized many children. I mean, cause you know, we lost touch with our friends, people we'd been friends with forever. I had lived in New Orleans my entire life within a mile of the house my kids, you know, were born in. And so like our whole lives were thrown upside down. So it really became very apparent to me that I needed to focus on what were they gonna glean from this experience of Lisa, somebody who they were very close with and her children, and then the hurricane. What were they gonna glean from these conceivably really bad experiences, the worst they'd ever seen? And what were they gonna be able to look back on and say? And so it was very important to me that I had the right mindset and the right attitude. So, I mean, I really tried hard to bring joy into the situation. I mean, an example, and it probably sounds so silly now, but I mean, when we moved to Georgia initially, you know, I mean, we had nothing. And I mean, I won't bore you with all the details, but I mean, we literally came like with the clothes on our back. We had barely any money in the bank. I mean, that's a whole long story in and of itself. And so we signed up for horseback riding lessons and I couldn't afford horseback riding lessons for these four kids, but we did a swap with the barn where we would go and do all this work around the barn and muck stalls and do things. And the kids and I spent hours around the horses and learning horseback riding. And at the time I was homeschooling the kids. So, you know, that was something we could do along with their schooling. And oh my gosh, it was an amazing opportunity. I mean, you know, from my three-year-old who learned to ride this little pony named Rosie. And 
I mean, we all have memories of him just up on Rosie going, walk, Rosie, walk, and Rosie would just walk along. But I think, you know, for me, it was, I mean, my children's childhood should not be taken away because of this bizarre natural disaster and my friend's, you know, cancer diagnosis, which turned out to be, you know, a fatal diagnosis, obviously. Um, and so it was important that they saw, like, how do we find life and hope and joy in what could be felt to be really bad circumstances? And I think that's such an important um uh, key to the resiliency is to know that in the midst of even some of the most you know traumatic events, there's always opportunity. And if you focus on the opportunity, you'll find the blessings. And uh -huh. I think that's such an incredible story. So you you yourself went through a divorce, um, and how like so that was about five years you said after Hurricane Katrina. How did you all continue to kind of coexist during that period of time when you knew you were going to get a divorce? Well, I think we both were very focused on the best interests of our children, and we knew that divorcing at that moment really would have been damaging. I mean, like I said, I mean we were. There's financial issues. Both of us were attorneys. We were not not barred in Georgia or then when we moved to Minnesota, we weren't barred in Minnesota. You know, we both had to go through that rebarring process. I mean, there was a lot to be done post losing everything in Hurricane Katrina. You know, I mean, it was just a pretty big deal. And so I think we knew that we needed to stay focused on what was best in stabilizing our family and making sure the children would be as stable as possible. And so I think we just kind of operated, I call it, you know, co-CEOs, like we just really operated to maximize our children. I mean, it was clear that our relationship was, you know, not gonna survive all of this. And, but I mean, our co-parenting relationship not only had to survive, it had to thrive. And so our children counted on both of us, you know, and they still do in different ways and for different things. But that time period was really important, I think, in stabilizing our family. What are some tips that you kind of gleaned um, that you help your clients with when it comes to co-parenting? Like, how do you help people, um, you know, stay focused on the children when they're in the midst of the divorce? Because that can be a really hard thing. Oh, it is. It is really hard. And to say that I have failed I mean, countless times is an understatement. Obviously, it's always a work in progress. But I think one of the things that I always ask myself and I ask my clients, like, do I love my children more than I hate my ex? And that sounds really harsh, you know, when you even refer with the word hate in there. But I think it's really important to actually get down to that nitty gritty detail. And most parents absolutely love their children more than they have any negative feelings towards their ex. And I think once you get clear on that, every single time you're making a decision or you're having a conversation, I mean, you remind yourself of that. And sometimes that's going to mean biting your tongue on something that maybe, you know, you want to say or not reacting in a certain way or not jumping on those things that you're ex soon to be ex might be doing to push your buttons. I mean, as we all know, we can push each other's buttons endlessly and realizing that the children are just victims in this process. I mean, they are innocent from all of this conflict and they need to stay that way because it is the conflict that harms these children so dramatically. 
And so I think doing everything you can to put your children's needs first and stay out of the conflict. And I used to say to my ex all the time, I mean, co-parenting is not a competitive sport. Like we can both do this and we can both work to our strengths because there's definitely things that he does better than I do. And there's things that I do better than he does. And learning to parse that out is huge. And now, even though it wasn't a part of my lexicon when I was going through the divorce, I mean, there's a book out called Fair Play by Eve Rodsky, which I would say is game changing for co-parents. I mean, it's not written in the divorce context, but it can be used absolutely in a divorce and helping people see what are the things that need to get done and how do we divvy them up in a way that makes sense and that we're on the same page and we're communicating fully. I mean, Fair Play and the card game that goes along with it is so game-changing for parents. So we are definitely gonna come back and explore that some more. But I wanna go back to a couple of things that you said that I just, they're like, that are just gold. And that is, um, you know, the fact that the divorce itself is a period of transition and children can survive transition. Like that's not the hard thing, it is the conflict. And so, you know, when you're in the midst of the day-to-day -day divorce world, um, I, I guess I would ask you like, what, what were some moments where you realized, oh, because I love my children more, I'm not going to say this, or because I love my children more than I hate my ex. Like, how did that play out for you? What were some moments where you, you really like had to shift your perspective? Because I think what comes naturally in the heat of the moment is, is not good for kids. No, <laughs> it it's is, a lot of fury and yeah. rage that comes naturally, at least for me. I mean, I, I mean, really in the most, I mean, one of the things that just rings true to me and what strike struck me during our actual divorce process, and we were involved in a collaborative divorce process. So we were trying to do the divorce itself in a um, positive, more amicable kind of way, you know, staying out of litigation. Um, there was a situation where we were dealing with money and child support stuff, and it turns out my ex was not being honest at all. And I mean, I kept asking him about it and asking him about it, and, you know, he kept giving the same answer. And literally, as we're driving to the lawyer's offices separately, we're driving to um, meet at this meeting. I mean, he calls me and he's like, you know, I haven't been honest with you. And I was like, well, duh. And um but it was one of those things that, I mean, so easily could have blown up our process. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, there was issues of, you know, whether which financial documents I had, all this kind of stuff about disclosures and things. But I mean, in that car, I mean, I was sitting in a parking lot outside of Subway in Minnesota. And I remember thinking I could blow up our process and kind of, you know, start this litigation and really go toe to toe with him on these things. Or I could not, I could let this process get to the end and we could try to stay as amicable as, as possible. And I could, cause at the time I had just gone back to work. I mean, I had not been working for a long time, but I thought to myself in that parking lot, I'm gonna earn circles around this guy one day <laughs> and I'm not gonna give a hoot how much money he pays me. And that was a very defining moment for me in that parking lot of the subway in Minnesota. <laughs> I love that. And you know what I love most about it is that people 
often think that, you know, if we're settling or I'm, I'm walking away from something that I could use to really nail him, that that's weakness. And in fact, it really is, it comes from a place of strength. I mean, it can't. Look, if you, if you feel like you have to settle because you have no other options and you're being pressured to settle, that's coming from a place of weakness. But if you are exploring all of your options and you're looking at this and you're making a choice, you know what? I want to move my life forward instead of staying stuck. That is such an empowered decision. Absolutely. And I think it was, for me at least, it was so empowering to not look at the divorce as what is he going to do for me moving forward financially? Like, how am I going to stay tied to him financially? And how's that going to be the thing? I wanted to figure out how do I move forward where any financial stuff from him was just lanyap to me. Lanyap being like a bonus, you know, in New Orleans, right. we talk about like 13 donuts in a dozen. But, um, and I wanted that to be my life moving forward, not where I was constantly looking for money or constantly looking to him to solve something. And so when I resolved in that parking lot to just keep moving forward. I knew who I was dealing with. Obviously, I'd been married for 18 years. I mean, there was reasons we were divorcing. And some of those reasons were never going to change. The thing I could change was me. And what I could do was how was I going to look at things differently? And I made a major mindset set shift in that parking lot and have really never looked back. And that's a that's one of those life changing moments, and I and I love that because that is you know where you really become the creator of your own life instead of being dependent on somebody else and getting so caught up in the anger um, of that moment. Now, just to be clear, you were you practicing family law at this time? Were you a lawyer? I, I was a lawyer, but I was working as a guardian ad litem in Minnesota. They actually have a little bit of a different process. I mean, I was hired by the state of the Minnesota to be a guardian ad litem in a, one of the judicial districts there. So that's what I was doing. Um, you know, obviously you're not earning a ton of money, but it was a great entree to me back into the legal world because I had been out of work for a decade, staying home, taking care of our kids, homeschooling our kids. And so, I mean, I'd been a stay-at-home mom for a decade, totally dependent on David. And so it was um, it was a major shift for me. And obviously things don't happen overnight. I mean, I didn't all of a sudden, you know, in 2010, be able to support myself perfectly. <laughs> like, you know, that has been a process. And, you know, as I sit here today in 2021, almost 2022, I mean, it has been that long of a process and of, of me developing and growing my own practice, you know, moving to Seattle, remarrying, putting all my kids through college with no help from my ex. And, um, but that's okay too. Like, I mean, realizing in that parking lot, I mean, I hate to go back to that parking lot so much, but it was really empowering to me to realize that I could spend all the rest of my life being bitter and angry about the financial aspects of things or I could decide to enjoy my life and just simply let it go, not allow that anger to rule what I was going to be like, what vibe I was going to bring to my family all the time. I mean, I tend to be kind of playful and fun and I mean, zany, my children would say like, and I like, I like that. And I like being optimistic and fun. And I just, that bitterness and anger 
was just, it, it just tears at you and it really eats you alive. And it just sucks the joy out of every day. I wanted to go on moon drives and, you know, look for orcas or whatever <laughs> it is I like to do. I don't want to be angry and bitter. And now you have orcas at your front yeah. window, which you just shared with me. You got to see orcas um, at your window, which is so amazing. And I yeah. just think, you know, to, to, to know what that feeling is like when you're sitting in a parking lot and it feels like the whole world is caving in and and, you know, it's easy to lose your identity and to lose your core of who you are if you let the anger take over, you know, but to, but to stay true to who you are and to hold on to that and then to, you know, pursue a path where you're not only benefiting yourself and your children, but you're able to benefit all these other families. So let's talk a little bit about what that transition was like. How did you end up in Seattle? Yeah, well. You know how life is kind of funny, but um, my current husband, Doug, he and I had known each other for years. Um, they had lived down the street from us in New Orleans. Well, both Doug and I found out we were divorcing our spouses of many years. And so um, then, you know, we just started seeing each other. Doug flew out to Minnesota and we started seeing each other. And so we did a long distance thing for a while. And, you know, that was kind of hard. But um, then we found like it was the right time. And so when Doug asked me to marry him, I mean, our children, you know, there was some juggling, but I mean, our children were at good stages, at least most of them. We had one who was starting high school, one starting middle school and one in elementary school. I did have a, a daughter who was gonna be a junior in high school. And she really, you know, blessed the, the move because that was the one I was obviously most concerned about from a transition standpoint. But we then moved to Seattle and um, have lived out here ever since. And, you know, no doubt blending families is rocky. I don't mean to say that it is not. And even our children who knew each other since they were itty bitties. I mean, our, you know, like I said, they grew up down the street from us in New Orleans. So our children knew each other since they were about like the oldest were around kindergartenish age. And, um, you know, then down to me having a baby, like they were there when I had Ethan. So, um, you know, but I mean, we have done, I think, a really remarkable job of being able to blend a family and give the kids all the space they need to do that successfully. And um, and now we really get to enjoy the fruits of that, you know, as we enjoy our young adults from all over and get to travel with them, spend time with them in different configurations. I always love hearing stories about your children. You have amazing children and that's just awesome. Um, let's talk a little bit about your your family law practice, about Elise Bowie Family Law. What um, When did you decide to go into family law to kind of move away from the guardian ad litem and actually become a family lawyer and to start your own practice? Sure. Well, I mean, I have been a guardian ad litem and still do guardian ad litem work today, actually. Um, I take on less and less. But I mean, that has been for sure my passion is guardian ad litem work, really um, focusing on, you know, high conflict divorce and its impact on children. I mean, I think I have a just a massive passion for helping children not suffer from high conflict divorce. But that being said, in Seattle, um, I passed the bar here in 2012, I guess. I got my license here in 2012. 
And so then worked for other people here in the family law arena, doing both family law and guardian ad litem work. And then in 2015, I started my own firm, um, very focused on a firm that was going to be able to bring working moms back into the workforce and offer that flexibility. At the time, you know, I had a bunch of kids, um, you know, middle school, high school, and I was like, I don't see how I'm supposed to sit in this office all day, every day, yet I'm the football mom, the lacrosse mom, the treasury of the booster, you know, all the things that I did. And it was, it really became obvious to me that I needed so much more flexibility. And if I needed that much more flexibility, so do a lot of other moms. And so I started a firm in 2015 virtually and um, to offer that flexibility and to really, uh, at the time, I didn't know, you know, necessarily where our firm was headed. But I mean, since that time, I've been very, very focused on growing a firm that is a super positive place to work that offers that flexibility and has an amazing law firm culture because law firms are not known for their amazing cultures. And so that is something that means a lot to me. And I want I really have a heart for the idea that we can have it all, but not in the way that I think that sometimes is used. I, women in particular, um, I think, you know, juggle so many things. And I think it is very important that they're able to have a thriving professional life as well as a thriving family home life. And I think to do that, it requires some different parameters than a lot of law firms put in place. Well, I just love what you are doing. And I think you're such an inspiration uh, because it's true. I mean, the practice of law doesn't have to suck. <laughs> um, I, think I, I think I got that from you. I, I say that all the time. But I mean, it really can be an amazing uh, field, especially for women, you know, managing all of the different things that we do, which I now want to shift gears and talk about fair play um, because I've heard you talk about um, the book before and I've been listening to the book and you did a great interview with Eve Rodsky um, on your podcast. But what, how did you find out about fair play and what has, how have you implemented that in your own life? Oh, um, I found out about fair play really soon after the book came out and um I don't know exactly how I found out about it, but I was drawn to it in, I mean, just immediately. Because once I started reading the book, then I immediately got the card game and I, you know, had Doug and I play the card game, which, I mean, I thought for certain he would hold the majority of the cards because Doug, like I say, is truly a Renaissance kind of progressive guy. I mean, he is so supportive. I mean, there's no thought in his mind that I should be doing things solely because, you know, they're traditionally women held tasks. He just doesn't look at things like that. So when we played the card game, it was pretty striking to me to see that even in our scenario, I still held the majority of the cards. And and so that made me realize, I mean, most women literally not only hold the majority of the cards, I mean like 90 plus percent of the cards. Okay, so what are the cards? Well, the cards are, I'm trying, oh look, I have some right here. The cards are, it's a card game, 
where each card represents like a task. Like one of them is called school forms as an example. And you, anybody with children knows you fill out school form, forms in the beginning of the year and it is a part-time job for a week. <laughs> I mean, you are filling out hundreds of forms. Multiply that times six and it, it became a full-time job. <laughs> and dry cleaning. I mean, you know, just anything. You can think of the cards as I mean, I hate to say tasks, but they're almost like tasks, but they're divvied up into different um, areas, things like, you know, related to children, home. The wild cards are my favorite, like home renovation, as an example. And that's something Doug and I have been going through all 2021. But so the cards are divvied up in these different categories. And you then evaluate the cards and you determine first a minimum standard of care for each thing because that is such an important thing like what i think might be critical in let's say dinners you know weekly dinners maybe i'm a total vegetable freak and i think we need three vegetables at every dinner whereas you know my spouse might be all about you know boxed mac and cheese and he might think you know if he feeds the kids boxed mac and cheese every night we are golden you know these kids are doing great and that can be a real disconnect between couples. So once you get over the minimum standard of care, then you look at the cards and Eve's entire point is about the owner's mindset and owning the entire thing. So conceptualize, planning and execution. And in most families who don't play this game or haven't read this, women are doing the conceptualizing and planning on almost 100% of things. And then the executing men, that's where men step in. And we see it all the time where people will be like, oh, but I drive the kids to and from soccer. And it's like, well, that is awesome. And I mean, hugely, that's awesome. But who found the soccer team? Who bought the soccer equipment? Who decided what size was for the soccer equipment? Who returned the equipment you bought that was not the right size? Who made the medical appointments so you could go get the medical releases signed? You know, who found the coach's gift, who signed up for the listserv, who scheduled the carpool. You know, there's a lot more to just driving to and from soccer. I think it is such a brilliant concept because I think what happens in most families is it's sort of by accident, right, that yep. spouses take on certain roles. And when what I noticed as I've read the book, and I don't have the cards yet because I haven't been able to get my hands on a set, Hi. but I did sign up for your book club, so I think I'm going to get yeah. a set. Um, but it, it just like the resentment of feeling like I'm doing it all. And yet when I stop and look at it, I mean, I was really aware, like, especially we just had a holiday weekend over the holiday weekend, you know, like my husband is in charge of the turkey. Like he, he conceives the turkey, how he's going to cook it. He went out to the store and bought the turkeys. He, you know, he did all these things. And I, I was just looking at that going, wow, I mean, that's great. Like there are, there are so many things that he's doing that I'm not paying attention to because I'm so preoccupied over here with all the side dishes that have to get ready. Um, but when you look at it, there's really a newfound appreciation for the roles that we are playing. And I think the idea of, you know, making it, maybe, I don't, I mean, a little bit more fair, divvying it up, being intentional about it, really. It isn't, nah. I mean, I can end up holding most of the cards or he probably, I know he feels like he's holding most of the cards, um, but, but being intentional about how these things are getting done, it just, it just opens up for such a different conversation. It, it's wildly informative to your conversations in general. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that is so important, one of the sections of the cards is called the daily grind. 
and you can imagine with that title what we're talking about, like, you know, meals, laundry, you know, things that are just constant. Um, so those get really onerous. And in some families, they redeal these cards. I mean, sometimes every day you might have a family where, you know, one person makes the dinner on Monday, the next one Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, so forth and so on. And it really depends on people's strengths, interests, time. Like there's no set way to do it. I mean, what's fair for my family might not be fair for your family. Right. And in no way am I talking about divvying up the cards, you know, 50-50, because obviously like home renovation is a massive card, let me assure you, <laughs> you know, like keeping up with the entire project. I mean, I could do laundry, you know, 20 times over and never hit one day of project managing in the home renovation department, you know, so you've really got to look at what works. And I mean, I'm a firm believer in people working to their strengths. I mean, I should not be doing something that I know I suck at. Like, <laughs> let's just not put me in that role. And same with Doug. I mean, we are very honest about the things that we're good at and the things we're not good at. And if we both suck at it, I mean, we're the first to find somebody to delegate it to if we actually need to do it. Because one of the first things you do when you get these cards is you deal your own deck. And that means of the hundred cards, you're going to go through and see if you both care about each card. And if you both don't care about a card, by all means, throw it out of your deck. Right. You know, and you don't need to deal with that because a lot of what we all do comes from what I call the shoulds, you know, like we should be doing all these things. I mean, I don't want to live my life by shoulds. I want to live my life by what I want to do and what is important to me and my values and Doug's and Doug's values, not what some outside source says we should be doing. And how how does this improve your marriage? I mean, I know that's such a as a as a easy soft serve question, but I'm just thinking, you know, when we're doing it by default, kind of by accident, we're never intentional about it. And you know, typically she is the one who's conceiving, you know, whatever it is that needs to get done, and then he's left with his to do list and feels like he's being nagged all the time, right? And so all that yep. friction is building up. And so how has this? I mean, you and Doug had a great relationship before you. Uh, found fair play, but how have you found that this has really enhanced your relationship? Oh, I think it's just been game changing because it allows us to have those conversations that need to be had in every couple in a way that is not difficult. I mean, because I can literally just say, I'm like, oh, you know, let's look at our cards again because I feel like maybe redealing one of these might be beneficial, you know, because if one of us is kind of hitting a wall or struggling or complaining about something, let's look at it and see what can we do differently. And the other thing is, I mean, let's be serious. It is hard to hold resentment and desire in the same heart. And so if your marriage has that resentment, which, I mean, we all, all of us who have gotten a divorce surely know what that feels like. Um, there is no desire. And so your marriage inevitably is going to die because, I mean, without desire and intimacy, I mean, why are we married? You know, like there's, and so absolutely warding off all feelings of resentment, which really does happen when you're able to communicate fully about 
the stuff of life. I mean, the hundred cards of life are no joke. I mean, and when you look at the deck, once they, they are out of stock, but they will come back. I mean, 40 of those cards are just child related. So if you're a couple with children, I mean, your deck is stacked with cards. And being able to have this conversation over and over again in a way that is not difficult. I mean, because the book talks about, and I mean, the class I just took, I just became a fair play facilitator. I mean, we do check-ins and there's actually a check-in sheet on how can you check in appropriately, you know, as you're going through your cards so that you're making sure you're having the appropriate conversations at a good cadence for you. And I mean, it just, it makes all the difference. I mean, to be able to have that type of real equal partnership, I mean, that then allows desire in your marriage to flourish. I mean, and it just, your marriage is just gonna be so much better for the conversations that Fair Play brings to your home. I'm just thinking of, um you know, all the the kerfuffles that happen in life, all the conflict that is stirred up by not communicating about these things and by all the unspoken expectations and all that resentment and, and what a game changer this is. Now, you spoke about using this even with divorced families um, in the co-parenting. And I'm curious about how that works. Um, what, what suggestions do you have for people who are going through the divorce um, in terms of using this this amazing tool yeah i think fair play is just really game-changing for parents who are splitting up going into two homes because one of the big struggles in the two home model is communication you know and making sure that things are getting covered i mean i talk to my clients a lot like people who have a 50 50 plan let's say they're doing a week on week off type schedule that is not you being a 50% parent to successfully do a 50-50 plan, you need two 100% parents. You need parents who understand the full deck of cards and who understand all the pieces that go into it. So if you're in that type of situation, being able to sit down and sometimes maybe you're sitting down with a parenting coordinator or a parent coach, like maybe your communication might be rockier to start with sitting down with a third party and helping you create your deck and then deal that deck and then come up with a cadence of how are you going to review it because maybe there's one parent who's just phenomenal with the medical stuff like they are on it they never miss a follow-up you know there is no oh my gosh mom i haven't gone to the dentist in nine months you know they are all over it you want that person to hold that card. You know, you want that person to be doing that. And instead of looking at co-parenting as a competitive sport where they're trying to kind of outdo each other or find out how one person fails, again, let's deal that deck to our strengths and let's look at what's possible. What does each parent do well? What does each child need? And then divvy those cards up. And I think when you have those cards and you've discussed that minimum standard of care, so much of the conflict post-divorce is going to be eradicated. Because as you well know, you know, running your own family law firm, I mean, the conflict post-divorce can become pretty debilitating for some people. I mean, I call it the organic broccoli versus mac and cheese conflict, where people literally are fighting over what are they feeding their children? And it's like, really? 
this is what you're going to damage your child's psyche over? Like, I think not. And so really being any structure we as divorce professionals can bring to co-parents where we can de-escalate any and all conflict, all that does is help the children and thus help the family. I love that so much because I think, um, you know, there... There, there is so much good that can come out of really constructive conversations and clarifying those expectations and really setting families up to succeed post-divorce, which the system itself doesn't provide. I mean, that is no. not, you know, the conversations that the judge is able to have. I mean, I, just because no. there's not there's not time for that and that's not the role. But I think to really engage professionals who come into it with that mindset of how do we how do we help people maximize their relationships with their children with each other and live their best life after divorce completely <clears throat> well and it's fascinating i mean when you talk about just then bringing up the court i mean and this is definitely a bigger conversation i mean it's insane that the court is involved at all in family law like it is it makes no sense we look at the law every other legal arena. I mean, you look at big corporate law. I mean, all kinds of law. People, they've solved their disputes outside. You know, they go to ADR, arbitration, mediation, all kinds of different things. They sit and have these long summits, you know, discussing problems and solving them. The thought that family law, we all just default to the court so readily. It's so damaging to families because it creates this win-lose model. And the reality is when you're raising children, lots of opinions come into it. And there is often not one right and one wrong opinion. I mean, there's value in all most of the time in being able to find those nuggets of value and being able to work together to create a win-win-win. I mean, is in my mind, should be the whole goal of family law because that's what I mean, that's how we're going to do well. I mean, let's face it, divorce is here to stay. And figuring out how to help kids navigate divorce as successfully as possible so that we don't have entire generations that are negatively impacted by divorce. I mean, we must focus on that. I love that so much. And, you know, it doesn't matter <clears throat> what legal system you're in, um, you know, whether it's in Texas, because it's, it varies state by state. I mean, I, people don't even realize that, you know, when you get married, a whole body of law wraps around your right. marriage. And if you move states, it's a whole different body of law, though there are a lot of similarities state to state. But, you know, the the legal system process itself is really not set up to help people acquire the skill sets that are necessary. And I, and it's not because it's not well-meaning. I mean, I think so often our courts are yeah. well-meaning. We have, you know, excellent judges. We have excellent professionals who are in the system, but it's just, it's just not set up. And that's why, you know, looking and searching out and working with professionals who come into divorce with that mindset is so incredibly important. And I, you know, you're doing such amazing work um, with your team. As we kind of wrap up our talk today, Elise, I know, I mean, you've covered this already, but I'm just going to give you another opportunity to share with us what message of hope that you have for families who are facing divorce. Well, I just feel like there's so much hope in divorce, which I know sounds kind of funny at times, but it when you are able to look at both look back and see what didn't work or what failed in the prior marriage 
and really be able to turn that mirror on yourself and learn from it and really take that opportunity to grow personally. And I mean, deeply grow personally. The result on the other end of the divorce is, I mean, sometimes you are unrecognizable to yourself. I mean, I have to say the other day, we recently did like a video shoot for our firm. And one of the things they wanted was past client testimonials. And I had a client who I had worked with during the divorce who was really at her very worst. I mean, there were some days she just could not get dressed and even get to my office to a meeting. I mean, so one time I literally grabbed Starbucks and showed up at her kitchen table so she could just be at where she was, which was really in a bad spot. But that didn't matter to me. I needed to be there for her right then and there. Well, to see her last week and to see her be able to tell me like, I'm a millionaire now. I am, you know, dating somebody who's amazing. I have an amazing job. My child is thriving and has an awesome relationship with his dad. His dad and I have an awesome relationship and I'm getting along with his girlfriend. I mean, who was part of the breakup. Like, what? <laughs> but that's, to me, I mean, life goals as a divorce attorney. Do you know? I could not be more thrilled for somebody who's been able to take what absolutely can be such a, a down experience and really traumatic and completely flip that pancake and make it where it is just, I mean, it was a springboard for her success all around. I, I love that you shared that. And it, you know, it brought to mind many clients that, um, you know, I've seen too, who come in at a time of their absolute worst. And it feels like the whole world is, you know, closing oh, yeah. in on them and changing. Um, and then you see them after the divorce and, you know, they look the unrecognizable is exactly right. Physically, everything has changed. And, you know, I like nobody gets married hoping to get a divorce someday. We know that. And divorce, you know, it has its own sadness. And by all means, if you can work on your marriage and build a healthy marriage, do that. Um, buy Fair Play and read it and get the books, get the cards. But if you can't, it's okay. And not only is it okay, it can be amazing post-divorce. And that's why I'm so thankful to you for helping share that story and the message and the work that you do in your own personal story, at least. Well, I'm so glad I could be here with you today. And I love, love that you are doing some more work around positivity and divorce because there is so much positivity in divorce. There really is. And um, I, we are going to include links to your website where people can learn more. Um, and if they want to find out about your Fair Play book club, where should they go for that? Well, I will have to get that link to you and you can put it in there. Um, they can go to our firm website okay. and reach out because um, I don't think I know the link off the top of my head. I'm sorry. No, that's but, okay. Um, we, will, we will get I, it. <laughs> perfect. And I we'll appreciate that. it. And I look forward to participating as well. So oh, I'm so excited that you're reading it. I think bringing a perspective of somebody who's been married for a long time, you know, raised children like you have, it is going to be such a valuable insight in the book club. So I'm I'm thrilled that you're joining us for that. Thank you. I can't wait. So this has been awesome. And uh, we, we hope that if you like the show today, you'll subscribe below and uh, listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or watch it on YouTube. And Elise, thank you again so much for being here. 
Absolutely. And you have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too.